Welcome to the PackSex Podcast, available on Apple and Google Podcasts and sponsored by Jetliner Cabin's ebook app. This is episode 62 of the show where we talk about how the airline passenger experience is evolving in a mobile, social, vocal world. I'm Mary Kirby and I'm joined by my co-host Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mary. It's the end of the summer, it's fall, and I'm surrounded by the din of leaf blowers and all kinds of uh, noises. Hopefully not too much of that will get into the recording. But, you know, I'd rather be at the airport listening to uh, jet sounds than leaf blower sounds. <laughs> well, it is beautiful out there, and it's beautiful here as well, uh, Max. And uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, after some of these election results here this week, I have a wee spring in my step because women are heading to the House of Representatives in record numbers, Max, which of course is really exciting. Um, And after recording this podcast, I'm getting back on the road to attend a presentation by Britain's Royal Aeronautical Society about the economics of the new breed of supersonic jets, which will be, yeah, super interesting. So it's a good week in Kirby land, Max. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) But... Before we get started, we'd like to thank the Jetliner Cabins ebook app for sponsoring this week's podcast. Jetliner Cabins is the story of how scientists, designers, engineers, maintenance, and marketing specialists have transformed the stark tubular interiors of typical airliners into unique settings. This ebook app invites readers to explore the expertise, discover the details, and enjoy the fascinating world of Jetliner Cabins. Visit jetlinercabins.com to learn more and to download the app. All right, Mary. Well, let's take a look at some of the PaxX news stories that are making headlines. First, Delta Airlines. They've given the world a peek at the passenger experience on their new Airbus A220-100 aircraft, formerly known as the Bombardier C-Series CS100. And it's perhaps unsurprising that the jet has received a very warm welcome. It features a number of passenger-pleasing attributes. Mary, what do you think passengers can expect on board the A220-100? Well, Max, this is such an exciting aircraft. I think you know how Flight Global is known for its aircraft cutaways of aircraft. Um, well, I still have a giant poster of the CS-100 hanging on my wall. <laughs> and, of course, now it's the A220-100, as you said. But um, I've been intrigued by the C-Series since Bombardier first started developing this twin jet. And it's absolutely wonderful to see Delta embrace what it describes as, quote, customer-friendly uh, aircraft attributes. So first to the all-important seating configuration, Delta has configured the aircraft with 21 recliner seats up front in a 2-2 layout. And these are 21 inches wide and offer 36 inches of pitch, so super comfortable. Mm. The extra legroom economy section, known as Delta Comfort Plus, features 15 seats pitched at 34 inches, and Delta will offer Comfort Plus passengers dedicated positions in the overhead bin for their carry-on bag, which is a win. And then finally, of course, economy class features 82 seats pitched at 30 to 31 inches, but rather intriguingly, Delta has chosen to distribute the width of the economy class seats evenly. So, as you probably know, the C-Series was kind of originally pitched by Bombardier as being able to accommodate a 19-inch wide middle seat Hmm. plus an 18.5-inch window seat and aisle seat. And that's a spectacular comfort proposition, especially for the middle seat occupant in that 19-inch wide seat. But journalist Marissa Garcia, in an article for Runway Girl, writes that Delta's decision to distribute the width evenly and offer 18.6-inch width for every economy and comfort plus passenger 
may be intended to save the carrier money on spares because having to manage irregular sizes gets expensive and Delta also gets to save on production costs on the seat covers and the cushions. But irrespective, 18.6 inches of width for all economy and comfort plus passengers is absolutely phenomenal. And it can make life easier, of course, for passengers of size and reduce mobility, which we've talked about a lot in the past. And if you kind of compare it with the width on the on this kind of small jet to the width that passengers are enduring on high-density wide bodies, you can kind of fully appreciate how special this is <laughs> for economy class passengers. But, um, but Max, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the new in-flight entertainment system, which is available at every single seat. It's a wireless seatback IFE system called GoGo Vision Touch. And it represents a collaboration between Delta and the carrier's in-flight connectivity provider, GoGo. Now, there is a lot of intrigue around this system because when GoGo first announced it, the company said it was going to use Hitachi tablets, customized and certified by Delta, the the Delta in-house product team. Um, But it begged a raft of questions, which Runway Girl asked, and that is because in-seat IFE providers have had a hell of a time trying to certify tablets and seatbacks due to very strict head injury criteria. So effectively, if a crash test dummy's head hits the seatback during a crash test and it results in sharp edge trauma, then the seat won't pass certification. And most, like the lion's share of tablets tablet-based IFE uh, concepts have actually not been able to pass HIC testing or have never gotten further, far enough down the line, Max, to even mm. get to that point because of the fact that so many of these tablets, of course, are, have glass. So we're waiting in you know, breathless anticipation here at Runway Girl Network because this is a subject we cover a lot to see how GoGo and Delta have actually accomplished the feat. Did they cover the tablets in like polycarbonate material to pass head injury criteria? And did they use a tablet with plastic OLED screens? Did they swap out current screens for OLED? Are they using any sort of thermoplastic cover? Um, did they find a way uh, to use tablets in the seat back and pass HIC? And so journalists are really looking Looking forward to trying out the system when the aircraft enters commercial service. And they're going to be doing like finger tapping tests and <laughs> trying to feel the screen to understand how this has happened. But props to Delta and GoGo if they um, have managed to do this um, with tablets and pass HIC. We can't wait to find out how they've done it. And do it without adding too much additional cost. Well, yeah, that's that's it too. Because, of course, the big proposition around tablet IFE is that airlines want to be able to swap out the tablet. You know, otherwise, then you're just effectively doing a, a, an, a traditional IFE system and calling it tablet IFE. But if you're genuinely using tablets with the goal of being able to then upgrade them as tablets upgrade, um, it's super intriguing to find out how they're managing to do it. So those details have not been released yet to my knowledge. And I have scoured, Max. And of mm. course, we've had longstanding questions to Bombardier Delta and GoGo on all of this. And they've been rather mum about the specifics. So... As is their prerogative, but I can tell you that journalists are waiting to get on those uh, aircraft when it en- enters commercial service and, and see what they can figure out there. Sure. And making it a wireless system, uh, that's intriguing, too. I mean, you uh, don't have to have the, the wires spooled through the through the cabin for that wireless system. Sounds like that makes a lot of sense. But it sounds like a very comfortable aircraft all yes. in all. Never having been in one, but uh, I think we're looking at full-spectrum LED lighting. Mm -hmm. We have uh, large windows, indented walls for window seats, things like that. So it looks like it will be a pretty comfortable plane. 
but speaking of the windows, one feature that I got pretty excited about is a window in one of the labs. Oh, yes. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> You know, it's it's fantastic, and there's you know there's a few other aircraft types that offer this, and and um, but it's fantastic to have a window in the lab. You know, um, of course, one thing, uh, one kind of uh, discussion that emerged on social media when when the pictures came out of uh, the window in the lab was just just be cautious if you're at the gate and you're using the lab. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you can look out, you know, Someone people can look can in. Look in. Um, but no, it's great. It's such a nice feature. And of course, that really adds to the spaciousness. Now, I'm not 100% sure if this particular, uh, it's obviously a larger lavatory based on everything that's emerged. I'm not sure if it's being built specifically as PRM accessible, but really it's a larger lab. So anything that flies in the face of the tiny lab movement right now is a great thing. And it's just so wonderful that they're packing so much in the way of positive PAX-X into this small jet, Max, you know? I mean, it's wild. Yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, they have now the first of the 75 planes that Delta is going to receive. And uh, this is part of their fleet modernization program. I mean, they're really looking to replace substantial portion of their fleet, which tends to be a little on the old side compared to the other U.S. majors. Yeah, it does. But, you know, uh, mad props to Delta. They're really setting some major PAXX industry standards out there. Um, you know, I think we may have talked about in the past how, you know, when they went to retrofit some of their 777s, they decided to stay nine abreast, flying in the face of the 10 abreast 777. Um, standard effectively that has emerged out there, that ultra high density. They they didn't do that when retrofitting their 777s. And, uh, you know, <laughs> these things are being noticed by passengers. I, I really got a kick out of over Halloween. Um, all of the different airlines, of course, produce some really fun content on social media. But um, Delta had a video suggesting that they're the house that had the best candy, <laughs> and they had like a seat. They had like a seat back and a tray table and a bowl of candy, and they were suggesting, you know, Delta is the the house that has the best candy. And from a passenger perspective in the United States, uh, you know, with a couple exceptions, the likes of uh, JetBlue and whatnot, you know, they give them a bit of a run for their money on the PaxX side. Delta is really excelling, so mad applause. Thank you, Delta. <laughs> <laughs> well, we see that flights are scheduled to begin in January, which is not too long uh, from now, from LaGuardia to Boston Logan, and also from LaGuardia to Dallas-Fort Worth. And maybe I need to find a, a reason to go to uh, Texas, Mary, so uh, I can have an excuse to get on one of these early flights and, and see it firsthand. I'm, I'm pretty excited about this airplane. Yeah, me too. Me too, Max. All right. Well, next, the International Civil Aviation Organization's recommendations for implementing a Global Aeronautical Distress Safety System, GADSS. I guess we can call that GADS. They've gone into effect as of November 8, 2018. Now, these recommendations were agreed in the months after the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines MH370. That was back in March 2014, if you can believe it's been that long. But the first steps in implementing GADS involve adopting what's called normal aircraft tracking. 
And these are SARPs, or Standards and Recommended Practices, SARPs. Now, these are solutions that establish an aircraft's positional information at least every 15 minutes for airplanes with a seating capacity greater than 19. Now, Mary, and please pardon the pun, but you've been tracking developments in the flight tracking space since the disappearance of MH370. Is industry prepared to meet these recommendations? Well, I got to tell you, Max, industry from the standpoint of uh, suppliers are ready. There is a variety of different solutions on offer for airlines right now. So firstly, Arion, which is a joint venture between satellite operator in Mars, uh, rather satellite operator Iridium and air navigation service providers around the world, will be fully operational next year. And that's space-based ADSB tracking of aircraft, whereas this Arion payload sits on Iridium's next satellite constellation, which has nearly been built out. Mm. Um, So that's going to be big because that's going to be global tracking of aircraft, um, you know, ADSB. And and, and a lot of people are getting behind that solution. Um, But in in advance of Arion's kind of global go-live date, FlightAware and Arion are offering a service which will enable airlines to meet the 15-minute tracking mandate now and be able to move to minute-by-minute tracking across the globe, um, including the polls uh, in 2019. So that's super exciting. It's, um, I, I would say there's a lot of momentum right now behind what Arion is doing. And, of course, airlines can always use ACARS, VHF, and HF ground stations to track their aircraft Um, as well as the MRSAT and Iridium satellite connectivity solutions that are on offer that effectively power uh, cockpit communications and safety services. Um, And these solutions, of course, were available before MH370, um, but airlines use them to various different degrees, uh, whether or not they're over oceans or not. So there's kind of an impetus to... uh, to adopt, obviously, now that uh, this ICAO recommendation is in a full effect. Um, but both Rockwell Collins and CETA On Air, which are the leaders in cockpit communications and safety services from a service uh, provisioning perspective, they're both offering comprehensive flight tracking solutions to the market. Um, and some of them, uh, you know, include using the technology that is on a lot of international aircraft already. Um, some would require an upgrade, but um, there there is really a raft of solutions on offer. But interestingly, ICAO was really flexible about how airlines can roll this out. So carriers that have broadband connectivity for passengers back in the cabin, they can use that connection to provide position reports. They're not inhibited from using cabin connectivity um, because this flight tracking recommendation, it doesn't say that it's explicitly a safety service. So that's really given airlines that flexibility to move data over the broadband pipe and um, I think that's going to be super beneficial because, ironically enough, while some carriers have offered and are adopting cabin connectivity, mm. uh, they haven't done quite as much up in the cockpit. So it's it's kind of fascinating that uh, that sometimes, well, oftentimes, passengers have access, say, for example, to even better uh, real-time weather mapping down back than the pilots do up front. <laughs> so um, so for, for ICAO to give airlines that opportunity to use a variety of different uh, avenues to meet the recommendations um, is super important. Uh, I will say this also, 
because airlines can use their broadband pipes for this position reporting, it further helps to strengthen the business model for bringing these rather exp- expensive systems on board. It, it's just another notch. It's a small one, but it's another notch in the uh, underscoring of the business model for broadband connectivity on aircraft, appreciating that it's that's a tiny amount of information, you know, yes. really. The position reports are tiny, but... And then there are more recommendations that are set to uh, take yeah. effect in 2021. The uh, ICAO Council adopted some additional SARPs that relate to the location of an airplane in distress, and uh, they detail an, an autonomous distress tracking system, or ADT, another another acronym, and that uh, this brings into the recommendations here a uh, transmission of information that can uh, be used to determine position at least once every minute. So uh, yeah. 15 minutes sounds pretty good, but uh, every minute, that's, uh, that's, you know, that's a lot of data. That's a lot of detail. It really is. And, and I, I got to say, this is where Arion seems really well positioned. And of course, Flight Radar 24, which has become a must follow after every aircraft accident, they continue to build out their ADSB tracking network. Um, and so you do see now um, this understanding that that's ultimately where we've got to get to. Um, and 2021, it's important uh, that, that we're going to see at least once every minute uh, tracking in a distressed condition. But then, you know, it's also important to note that that is um, for new aircraft that have right. a mass greater than 27,000 kilograms. So uh, it'll take a while, Max, to get to that point for the entire world fleet um, because that requirement is for new aircraft. But yeah, it's wonderful to see everyone moving in this direction. And I guess I do wonder ultimately if. Um, if we are going to move into a direction where we will see uh, the streaming of black box data um, when an anomaly uh, triggers that in flight. And, um, you know, Boeing, of course, uh, this week has issued an operations manual bulletin to 737 MAX operators covering air data sensors following uh, or as investigations are occurring into the crash of Lion Air Flight JT610. And immediately after this tragedy, we were kind of reminded that we're still using rather antiquated technology to understand what happens in a crash. So we're reliant on black box information being intact. And so I guess it, it begs the question of, yet again, will we move to a world where uh, all aircraft, of course, are tracked minute by minute, as ICAO suggests, but that in an anomaly in flight, that that would create a trigger where there would be a stream of black box data. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was something that, of course, was called for after Air France 447. And it was, you know, suggested yet again after uh, Malaysia Airlines MH370. Um, and Imarsat is, in fact, promising that it will be able to accommodate uh, such uh, triggered black box data streams. And it's working with a firm called Flight, F-L-Y-H-T, and others to move this uh, concept forward. Um, so it's interesting times, Max. You know, I, I think the, the Lion Air tragedy is just a net, yet another reminder that we're still using this kind of antiquated technology to try and understand what happened um, you know, in the moments after a crash. Yes. And uh, in speed to acquire the data uh, is important, yeah. too. And with the Lion Air tragic accident, uh, there was the flight data recorder, you know, initially re- uh, retrieved and the data yeah. finally pulled off of that. Uh, but 
you know, some delay. Now, in the case of something like MH370, uh, where the aircraft is either not found or it takes a long time to find, um, that's mm-hmm. a long delay. So I can see a, a world where, yeah, the data is streamed uh, from the aircraft and maybe with uh, uh, the hardened black boxes still remaining as, as maybe a backup or something like that. But uh, we want information. We need information. The, the the families need it, the investigators need it, and uh, automating it in this fashion seems to make a lot of sense. Would you say, with your long history in Industry Max, that the demand for answers in very quickly or immediately is far greater today than in past decades? Almost as a cultural consideration, because uh, our lives are, are, are much more immediate uh, these days because of all the technology that we have. I think people are, are kind of conditioned to not have to wait for an answer. The investigations proceed at the pace they do, and and that's fine. They need to proceed slowly and carefully like they do. But the public uh, doesn't really understand the notion that you might have an accident and perhaps a preliminary report in a few months and then the final report a year later. It's just tough for them to uh, to take so uh, if we can get the data sooner i, I think it uh, it has that kind of impact yeah well mary this is uh, an interesting topic that mm. um <laughs> we might get some uh, some mail on this one yes <laughs> as we've seen in the united states there have been a, a number of mass shootings and so far travel into the u.s has not been largely affected, I think, but there are a growing number of people who wonder oftentimes out loud if that will change. Now, uh, we see the sharing a picture on the front page of the Washington Post on October 27, which highlighted the mass shootings at a Pittsburgh synagogue, as well as the recent bomb mailing attempts. The Washington Post's assignment editor, Kate Woodsum, noted that If other countries had this kind of violence and instability, well, then the United States would issue travel warnings against them. Ah, boy. You know, you read some of the comments uh, from from folks, the tweets, uh, the comments under articles, and a lot of people are very concerned about gun violence and traveling to the United States and even is that safe. It's a difficult subject. And anytime you talk about uh, guns, gun violence, gun control uh, it tends to push people to uh, one extreme or another. But, you know, in thinking about this, uh, it occurred to me that there are many places in the world where some outsiders wouldn't even consider traveling to. So, for example, places like the Middle East sometimes or so-called third world countries, I hate that name, third world countries with marginal medical service or countries that have high disease rates like malaria. Sometimes it can be political, countries with oppressive dictatorships or economic instability, places with high crime rates, or even countries that are subject to earthquakes or volcanic eruptions or tsunamis. And people continue to live in these places Sometimes they're fine, sometimes not so much. And I think, you know, we each personally define our our own limits when contemplating travel. 
Uh, unfortunately, I think in this world of, as we were just talking, fast and near-perfect knowledge, our perception of a place or even a whole country can be influenced by the news stream. And that, of course, focuses generally on the bad. There really aren't that many places in the world that have no bad. But as for guns, you know, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of misunderstanding. I don't know. Affecting travel for people who are looking into the U.S. Well, the United States, it's a big country. Most of it's safe. However, I have to admit, people's perceptions are obviously influenced by the bad things that have happened and have been reported worldwide. And I think that is going to impact travel. I'm sure it will. Yeah, I, I, I think it ultimately will as well, Max. You know, I'm a mother and I have to uh, admit I'm petrified for my child given the scourge of mass shootings at schools. Um, and obviously I'm not alone. The, the Moms Demand group is really working hard to push for sensible gun legislation and they uh, they're working hard every single day um, because, alas, we have uh, a shooting of one or another nearly every single day. At least it's, it, it feels that way. Um, but you're right. We haven't yet seen a meaningful impact on travel to the United States. But I can tell you that I have friends and family who live abroad, including in Ireland, who see the U.S. as a less desirable travel destination these days for precisely this reason. Yeah. Uh, kind of the notion that citizens can have access to military-style weapons is very strange to people in a lot of other countries. Um, and in fact, after the San Bernardino mass shooting, a former Australian politician, Tim Fisher, said he, he thought Australia should warn citizens about traveling to the U.S. Um, and of course, since San Bernardino, there's been many mass shootings since then. Um, there was an interesting report uh, released um, in the springtime by Skift. Um, which effectively asked uh, this very question of, uh, of travelers in other countries. And they found that 33% of UK travelers said recent mass shootings would have no impact on their decision to travel to the United States. Um, more than 15% of Germany respondents said they weren't aware of any recent mass shootings, which I found interesting. Wow. They're like, what? Um, and 22% uh, of, uh, of Germans, uh, you know, queried in this uh, survey said they weren't even sure if, if it would impact their decisions. And similarly, in Japan, about 29% said they weren't sure if it would impact their decision to travel. Now, of course, this was a number of months ago. Uh, we've had a number of mass shootings, including this horrific shooting in Pittsburgh uh, at the synagogue. Um, so, you know, I don't know. It, it, it does beg the question of, of kind of when will we see a meaningful impact if, if things keep going down this road, if, if we don't see meaningful change on the uh, gun reform issue. <laughs> um, you and I have talked about this in the past, Max. Uh, I personally don't feel comfortable going anywhere that has open carry. Um, and a number of states have that. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, some states have open carry. Some states have concealed carry. In, in some yeah. states, the idea is someone is carrying a weapon. They want it to be visible so everyone knows they have a weapon. And right. in other states, it's the opposite. It's like if, if the person is legally allowed to carry a weapon, it, they want it concealed so it doesn't um, concern you know, the general population. So, and, and it really depends on you know, if you're looking at a, a rural state or, or one that uh, 
uh, where a significant portion of the population, for example, um, actually hunts to feed their family uh, versus, uh, you know, a northeast urban area where you really don't want people walking around with visible guns. So it's, it's a difficult thing. I don't think there's a uniform kind of approach. And then we have the whole thing with, you know, states' rights and... Uh, so we have this patchwork of of requirements across the United States for who can carry and who can't and what the requirements are. Um, and increasingly, um, the issue being and what is the the process, if any, to try to ensure the mental stability of someone who's allowed to right. carry a gun. And, you know, that's kind of the, I think, the big issue that we've seen lately where most of these uh, shooters in these in these terrible terrible mass shootings are seemingly highly unstable yet we don't really have a good way to keep guns out of their hands uh, very good point. And of course, for travelers, while it should be crystal clear that you're not to show up uh, to the airport yeah. with your weapon, <laughs> uh, a lot of a lot of travelers do indeed do that because, of course, the TSA uh, regularly reports on its haul of firearms at security checkpoints. And and Max, it's remarkable. It's huge. It's amazing. There's hundreds and hundreds of. <laughs> Of guns that are brought to the airport, I mean, <laughs> usually the the response from the traveler is, "Oh, I forgot that it was in my bag." But you know, and, and and as a gun owner, I will say that any gun owner should always know exactly where their guns are, and that's a very weak excuse. That that might be a good reason to uh, revoke their license to carry if they're walking around with firearms and and quote. They forgot that they had them. Yeah, I do like the idea of consequences to these things, Max, which is also uh, would be uh, disputed, I'd say, by some of our listeners as well. But I do like the idea of consequences if you're showing up. Now, the TSA... Uh, has even found surface-to-air missile launchers <laughs> <laughs> in people's bags. So, um, yeah, it's it's always interesting to check out that TSA blog because they're keeping track of it all, and uh, it just kind of beggars belief a little bit as to what people pack in their carry-on. But, um, uh, but hey, this is this is where we're at, and um, I don't I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, Max. (laughs) I don't know. Leave it there. Um, It is. It is. It's a tough one. Um, But we are rapidly coming to a close. We want to thank our listeners and our sponsor, Jetliner Cabin's ebook app. And remember, you can find us online at RunwayGirlNetwork.com and on the Apple and Google podcasts. Be sure to follow all Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at at Runway Girl. And remember to use the Pack 6 hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Join in the conversation. We'd love to have you. And there are people around the world using this hashtag, and it's highly informative and interesting. So, so please come join us. So please join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the Pack 6 podcast. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.